dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bass To the playhouse So the common narrative around the war on obesity goes something like this. Due to a massive epidemic of laziness and lack of control, people in the U.S. are becoming fatter. As a result of this, they are contracting serious diseases, draining the healthcare resources of the country, and tearing down the moral fabric of our society. The reality is much more complicated. In the medical community and in the media, obesity is typically described as an epidemic. So the same terminology that's used for the H1N1 virus or cholera. As Amy Farrell put it in her book, Fat Shame, with its connotations of disease, contagion, and proliferation, the choice of the term epidemic is deliberately alarmist, suggesting imminent danger and sure catastrophe if not addressed. Just last week, the American Medical Association decided to take this one step further and classify obesity as a disease. We have an epidemic of obese six-month-olds. There's something wrong with our biochemical negative feedback system that normally controls energy balance. Many of the leading obesity researchers who have created the official standards for what constitutes overweight and obese have also received sizable funding from the pharmaceutical and weight loss industries. You're listening to episode 737 of Unwelcome Guests, The War on Obesity. I'm Robin Upton. We have two speakers for you this time. We're going to begin with Rebecca Anshale Song speaking at Socialism 2013, 40 minutes on sexism and the food and diet industry. And thank you to We Are Many for delivering this via their website, wearemany.org. Whether the other women in their line of eyesight are skinnier or heavier than they are, whether or not they've exercised enough, whether or not other people find them repulsive, and the list goes on and on. A Glamour magazine survey not too long ago found that 97% of women, so basically all women, have an I hate my body moment every day. And the average was that they have these thoughts once every waking hour. As an example of how this obsession works, I want to read a quote from an eating disorder recovery forum. This woman said... I can't remember a time when my whole life didn't revolve around my weight. My mood is based on what my scale says every morning. I decide what I'll eat today depending on that scale. I pull it out several times a day to see what it says, several times a day getting undressed, and then criticizing myself for weighing too much. I don't think I'll ever be happy. Now, obviously not every woman has this exact relationship with a scale, but it's clear that most women feel enormous pressure to look a certain way, to look differently than they do, specifically to be a particular weight, um, and this causes an enormous amount of anxiety and unhappiness. So what I'm hoping to do today is explore why these very broad and deep-seated problems exist among so many women, what is actually behind the horrible way we view our bodies, Um, and I also want to challenge some of the typical assumptions that are often made about dieting um, and body weight. Um, And then finally, I'll talk a little bit about what it would take to actually build an alternative to this where people would have access to healthy food and healthcare, and where women would not be psychologically damaged with regard to their bodies. Where is this obsession with women's bodies coming from? I'm sure most of us in this room are conscious of the way that women's bodies and sexuality are used to sell everything from hamburgers to deodorant. 
Really, women's bodies are used not only to sell products, but to sell a particular image of what women should look like. And young women grow up with a nearly constant assault of images reflecting this particular body ideal. Uh, and these images of bodies, by the way, are increasingly thin. So the average model today weighs 23% less than the average woman and is between a size 0 and 4. In fact, the majority of runway models actually meet the weight criteria to be considered anorexic. Sizes 6 to 14 are now modeled by plus-size models in the fashion industry. Um, and even mannequins are dramatically undersized. So if the average mannequin were brought to life, it would be so thin that it would not be able to menstruate. And those model sizes, by the way, are pre-photoshopped. So since most media images now are altered, the images are even more unrealistic for the majority of women because they literally don't exist in nature. Um, every blemish, even the unsightly bones protruding from models that are extremely thin are photoshopped out. As an extreme example of this, Ralph Lauren came under fire a few years ago for publishing an altered picture of a model in which her pelvis appeared to be narrower than her head. And frankly, the statistics are out there, but we don't really need them to know that women's sense of self-worth and attractiveness is severely impacted by seeing thousands of images each year of what is largely an unattainable body shape. I think it's important to note as well that while at one time this particular body ideal was primarily dominant in the U.S. and Western European countries, the vast expansion of global capitalism over the last several decades has meant that the super-thin large-breasted white woman is now a cultural ideal in most of the world, um, including places that had quite different standards for female beauty just a few decades ago. For many women of color, this has brought along a particular pressure to look more like the white thin ideal. In a journal article titled Spreading the Religion of Thinness, Michelle Lelwicka points out that there have been documented increases in eating disorders and plastic surgery in a number of countries over the last couple of decades, including South Africa, China, and Lebanon. She also points out that over 50% of the ads in women's magazines in Mexico, Colombia, Chile, and Venezuela featured models described as young, white, and thin. This process of globalizing the super-thin body ideal for women only further underscores the fact that this isn't just some sort of natural biological preference that people have, but rather it is manufactured, and it's very specific to the time and place in which we live. So if we know that this is something that's being actively promoted, then the question we need to be asking is who benefits from this pressure on women? And the first and most obvious answer is that there are enormous profits built into promoting women's insecurity with their bodies. And I, I do want to take a little bit of time to actually look at where the money goes. So to start with the food industry, within the capitalist system, the way businesses survive, of course, is by engaging in a constant drive to maximize profits and growth and to minimize their costs. So the primary result of this in the food industry is that there are horrifically low standards both for the working conditions of agricultural workers and for the food itself because safety costs money and cuts into their profit margins. The goal is to grow and manufacture food as cheaply as possible. What this has meant is an increasing reliance on food that in many respects isn't really food at all. Um, and it has meant that because these companies control the market, the food that most people have access to is very unhealthy. Um, and our diets are vastly different than they were 60 years ago. This has, of course, contributed to changes in our health. Then during the 1980s, the food industry realized that it could dramatically increase its profits by also capitalizing on people's desire to lose weight. The result was that they started to manufacture so-called health foods, using cheaper chemicals to replace standard ingredients. And as Charlene Hesse-Biber pointed out in her book, The Cult of Thinness, which we have at Haymarket, light beer had more water in it, 
the saccharin in diet drinks was cheaper than sugar. Especially profitable were dairy analogs fabricated from inexpensive vegetable fats, margarine, egg substitutes, creamers, frozen dinners, and light cheeses. These diet foods have been an amazing profit windfall for the food industry because not only are they cheaper to produce, but they're often sold at a higher cost because millions of people who are desperately trying to lose weight will actually pay a premium if they think a certain food will help them in that process. Now, of course, there are even more varieties of specialty foods today, including so-called natural foods that cost even more than the diet foods um, from the same companies. And then, you know, food advertising also, you know, very clearly kind of reflects this relationship that the industry has with sexism and dieting. In 2011, YoPlay pulled an ad off the air after outcry that it essentially promoted eating disorders. Um, and it was a commercial where a thin woman was looking longingly at a slice of raspberry cheesecake and nervously trying to figure out how she could allow herself to indulge. And her ideas were, I can eat it while jogging in place, or I can just eat celery for the rest of the day. Um, Then an even thinner woman came up to the fridge and took a raspberry cheesecake-flavored Yoplait yogurt out and walked away. And, of course, the first woman, you know, gave up the idea of having the cheesecake and had the yogurt instead. Um, The pushback from eating disorder advocacy groups rightly said that showing a woman having major anxiety over eating a dessert and then deciding to deny herself the dessert only reinforces that this sort of disordered relationship we have to food is normal. But for YoPlay, like for many other companies, this was a logical way to advertise because they want to boost sales by promoting their food as the right choice for women who want to be thin. The flip side of the food industry is, of course, the diet industry. This includes a lot of different types of companies. There are diet programs like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig, diet books, food replacement products like SlimFast or the Hollywood Cookie Diet, nutritional supplements, prescription drugs, motivational speakers, diet doctors, and probably many more varieties that I haven't even listed. Um, And the very interesting thing about the diet industry is that regardless of the diet or product being promoted, none of them could statistically be said to work. Most estimates are that more than 80% of people who successfully lose weight while dieting regain all of the weight or more weight than they lost after two years. It's in the diet industry's interest to blame this on individual failure because it keeps people coming back over and over again. Uh, But of course, if other products or medical procedures had an 80% failure rate, they probably wouldn't be able to advertise themselves very confidently anymore. In Laura Frazier's book, Losing It, she talks about how in the 1980s, diet programs like Jenny Craig were openly advertising themselves to highlight the fact that you would need to keep coming back. So Jenny Craig had an ad that compared dieting with getting your hair done. Um, Just something you have to do over and over again to keep it up. Now today, there's a little more awareness about the risks of yo-yo dieting, so they tend to use the language of lifestyle changes instead. But their fundamental model hasn't really shifted. They still rely on people losing weight while they stick to the plan, leaving and gaining the weight back, feeling like a personal failure for regaining the weight, and then signing up for the program again. Of course, beyond the major diet programs, there are a whole host of other segments of the diet industry, some of which are actually quite dangerous. Individuals and companies promote fad diets like the baby food diet, the grapefruit diet, the blood type diet, and on and on. Uh, There are numerous supplements that claim to help people lose weight, which are barely or not at all regulated by the FDA. Many major stores, uh, you know, CBS, major drugstores, still sell uh, weight loss cleanses, diuretics, hoodia, uh, which has been known to cause increased heart rate. Uh, And if you really want it, it's still possible to buy Mahuang, which is ephedra online, which is basically speed, 
Doctors can still prescribe HCG injections for weight loss, which is a hormone produced by pregnant women that is known to cause headaches, blood clots, and other significant side effects. All of this together adds up to an enormous industry that now makes at least $61 billion a year selling fake solutions to women and some men, some of which are deadly. Uh, Then, of course, there's the plastic surgery industry. This industry especially benefits from the fact that the ideal for women's bodies is actually an amalgam of the impossible. Women are supposed to be thin, toned, have tiny hips, flat stomachs, and at the same time have really big breasts. Um, And this rarely occurs naturally. Uh, In in 2010, over 1.6 million plastic surgery procedures were done, with uh, breast augmentation and liposuction topping the list. And of course, we know that plastic surgeons are notorious for intentionally lowering women's self-esteem in order to convince them to go under the knife. In fact, not long ago, news hit that a plastic surgeon went to a career day at an elementary school in Virginia and brought breast implants for show and tell. Um, Because apparently no girl is too young to realize that her breasts are too small. And the scope of plastic surgery has has broadened as well. In recent years, uh, vaginal rejuvenation surgery has become a procedure. Um, Oh, it gets worse. (laughs) Somewhere around 5,000 women in the U.S. get each year. Um, with the most common version being labiaplasty, which includes a procedure called the Barbie, which removes the entire labia minora so that only the outer labia are visible, um, as smooth as plastic is how they describe it. Frankly, the idea that even vulva are supposed to look a certain way (laughs) shows just how uh, oppressive the pressure on our bodies is. And it's outrageous that this obsession has reached every part of a woman's body. Although some cosmetic medical procedures are very expensive and limited to, you know, ruling class women, the prevalence of lower cost procedures has been growing quite a bit. A survey of physicians a few years ago showed that Botox is now more commonly used by women who have household incomes between fifty dollars and $100,000 than it is by wealthier women. Doctors are intentionally marketing cheap procedures to, to make more money. In Hesse Biber's book, she quotes a plastic surgeon who talks about the growth of assembly line surgery. Um, He says, in Massachusetts, an MD is licensed to perform any type of plastic surgery he or she wants. If they do not want to spend the money opening up a surgery clinic, all they need to do is team up with an MBA who buys a clinic and says to the doctor, okay, get to work and start doing suction lipectomies as many as you can. There's no law that says he cannot. He can hire an MD with no training and say, we'll show you a movie on how to do it. Now, obviously, this, like many other aspects of this issue, is very closely tied in with the absolutely disgusting profit-based healthcare system in the U.S., because the idea of having factory assembly line-style invasive surgery is really something that only makes sense from the perspective of the person that's profiting from it. But this major profit source also couldn't exist if women weren't being systematically trained to hate their bodies. Rather than cosmetic surgery being a way for people to resolve medical issues or restore their appearance after accidents... Um, it's become another very dangerous way for women to try to reach the cultural standards of beauty. So there are numerous sources of profits to be made uh, for promoting an, an obsession about weight and beauty among women. Nonetheless, that still doesn't paint the whole picture about what drives this. The massive profits certainly go a long way towards sustaining this pressure on women. Um, but it's also important to situate the diet and beauty industries in the broader context of women's oppression in our society. Beyond the immediate profits, the constant pressure on women to be thin and pretty 
serves an ideological purpose in the process of maintaining women's oppression in general. On the one hand, as several feminist theorists have pointed out, it causes women to devote an enormous amount of time, energy, and money to fixing themselves, focusing their intention inward to their own faults. Laura Frazier describes this as a, a third job that women hold, a psychologically exhausting, time-consuming, and expensive job on top of uh, their jobs in the workplace and in the home. But more importantly, I think this focus on women's bodies and appearance trivializes women um, and reduces their value to their appearance. Mm -hmm. Women in our society are supposed to be defined far more by their looks than by any other aspect of their existence. Women are trained to see themselves as others see them and evaluate their own worth from the assumed preferences of others, specifically men that they have to impress in order to get a man and get married. As Susie Orbach, the author of um, Fat is a Feminist Issue, put it, to get a man, a woman has to learn to regard herself as an item, a commodity, a sex object. Much of her experience and identity depends on how she and others see her. This emphasis on presentation as the central aspect of a woman's existence makes her extremely self-conscious. It demands that she occupy herself with a self-image that others will find pleasing and attractive, an image that will immediately convey what kind of woman she is. She must observe and evaluate herself, scrutinizing every detail of herself as though she were an outside judge. She attempts to make herself in the image of womanhood presented by billboards, newspapers, magazines, and television. The media present women either in a sexual context or within the family, reflecting a woman's two prescribed roles, first as a sex object and then as a mother. She's brought up to marry by catching a man with her good looks and pleasing manner. This process of sexual objectification of women heavily influenced by media images and the industries we've already discussed, produces an environment in which it is seen as acceptable for individual men to treat women as objects. In many ways, both men and women are trained throughout life to view women's needs and desires as secondary to hypothetical male preferences. As a result, women are bombarded by comments on their body while walking down the street. They endure sexual harassment in the workplace and ultimately face the threat of rape. This is no coincidence because the oppression of women is extremely beneficial to the ruling class. And by training all of us to view this as sort of natural and inevitable and just part of our preferences about what women should look like, sexist ideas and practices become ingrained into our world. I don't really have time today to expand on the mechanics behind the role of women's oppression under capitalism, um, but I would, I would certainly encourage people to attend other sessions at this conference um, that will look more closely at that. So women's objectification serves an important purpose. Uh, in reinforcing women's oppression overall. And although objectification of women's bodies has been an issue since at least the early part of the 20th century, it should come as no surprise that we've seen a dramatic increase in this objectification since the 1980s, going along with a right-wing and ruling class backlash to the women's movement. In the last several years, however, this focus on women's bodies has actually expanded to include an intensified effort to shame fat people in general, and to blame all manner of social problems on an increase in average body weight. And so at this point, I want to kind of shift my focus to, and take a critical look at the, um, what's called the war on obesity. <laughs> um, so the common narrative around the war on obesity goes something like this. Due to a massive epidemic of laziness and lack of control, people in the U.S. are becoming fatter. As a result of this, they are contracting serious diseases, draining the healthcare resources of the country, and tearing down the moral fabric of our society. <laughs> and, uh, of course, 
you know, most people do view this as primarily an issue of personal responsibility. So obviously, you know, if people just had the willpower to eat right and exercise, get the right number of calories in versus calories out, the problem will be solved, right? Um, but this ignores a glaring elephant in the room. Why did tens of millions of people suddenly, at the same time, wake up and become lazy and fat when apparently their grandparents weren't? Um, and so the reality is much more complicated than that. Um, in the medical community and in the media, Obesity is typically described as an epidemic, mm -hmm. so the same terminology that's used for the H1N1 virus or cholera. Um, as Amy Farrell put it in her book, Fat Shame, with its connotations of disease, contagion, and proliferation, the choice of the term epidemic is deliberately alarmist, suggesting imminent danger and sure catastrophe if not addressed. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, just last week, the American Medical Association decided to take this one step further and classify obesity as a disease. Interestingly, in doing this, the AMA delegates actually overrode the recommendation of a committee tasked with studying the issue. So the AMA's Council on Science and Public Health, um, which had been studying the issue over the last year, said that obesity should not be considered a disease, mainly because the measure usually used to define obesity, the body mass index, the BMI, is simplistic and flawed. Mm -hmm. They noted that some people with a BMI above the level that usually defines obesity are perfectly healthy, while others below it can have dangerous levels of body fat or metabolic problems. And they also mentioned that the classification of obesity as a disease, conveniently, could cause increased pressure on the FDA to more quickly approve weight loss drugs. <laughs> Nonetheless, in, in the face of these recommendations from the committee, the AMA decided to go ahead and classify obesity a disease and effectively label one-third of the U.S. population as sick. Remarkably, the AMA's decision comes in a period in which a number of scientists have raised major questions about the assumption that increases in body weight have actually been the cause of other health problems. Paul Campos and other researchers have argued that a relationship between body mass and mortality only exists at the extreme ends of the spectrum, so a far smaller number of people than are currently labeled overweight, and that it's equally dangerous whether they have an extremely low uh, body mass index or extremely high. Even among the studies that do show increased mortality risk, they typically don't control for fitness level, amount of exercise, diet quality, weight cycling, diet drug use, or family history, all of which have you know, major impacts on an individual's health. So it is, in fact, very difficult to place any clear causation for medical problems with body weight itself. Campos, uh, Abigail Segoy, and others also argued in a 2006 edition of the International Journal of Epidemiology uh, that the premise which is assumed by so many that long-term weight loss will improve health can't even be tested because there has not been any method found that can consistently produce long-term weight loss. So um, there's no way to know if that would actually help people get healthier because it can't be done so far. Um, Dieting, on the other hand, and particularly yo-yo dieting, does have proven medical risks. These same researchers singled out financial interests in the industry as a major factor in the way the supposed obesity epidemic is being evaluated. So in the same uh, IJE article, the author said, many of the leading obesity researchers who have created the official standards for what constitutes overweight and obese have also received sizable funding from the pharmaceutical and weight loss industries. These obesity researchers also manage weight loss clinics and have an economic interest in defining unhealthy weight as broadly as possible by overstating the hazards of obesity and thus providing justifications for regulatory approvals as well as for government and insurance industry subsidization of their products. The fact of the matter is that even though people expect that doctors will be more conservative and careful in their approaches, um, a section of the medical industry has actually 
endorsed and profited from some of the most dangerous methods of weight loss that exist. Um, between 1993 and 1997, diet doctors and pharmaceutical executives um, across the U.S. made a killing on selling Fenfen, a drug which eventually caused many people to have pulmonary hypertension and heart valve problems. Diet doctors in nearly every city set up weight loss clinics where they wrote prescriptions for the drug to just about anyone who asked for it. Um, today, Fenfen is banned, but there are new drugs with their own potential side effects to take its place. In addition, something like 200,000 people every year are undergoing um, risky and invasive bariatric surgery, which is extremely profitable for the healthcare industry, um, but also carries a number of very serious potential complications for the people who undergo it. I'm not a medical expert myself, and, I, and so I don't, I don't feel qualified to sort of state definitively whether or not body fat directly causes health problems, but I am confident in saying that there's an enormous amount of evidence that the methods that are being used to address an increase in body weight at best don't really work, and at worst are actually quite harmful to the people that are, are using them. I think it's worth questioning whether it makes sense to continue to recommend to people that the best thing they can do for their health is to lose weight when there's an enormous amount of evidence that dieting um, and eating disorders are extremely harmful um, and that very few people actually succeed in keeping the weight off long term. Uh, where there is broader agreement in the scientific community, it is in the fact that people's weight on average has been increasing. So, you know, to take a look, you know, for a minute at, at what might be behind that, I think it's not entirely clear, but Outside of sort of, you know, this narrative of people just eating too much, there are a number of factors um, that are often completely ignored or just brushed over. Um, perhaps most importantly, we need to be clear that obesity and also diabetes, high cholesterol, etc., are all most prevalent in high-poverty communities. The rich in this country obviously have boundless access to healthy food, good health care, um, not to mention things like personal trainers, personal chefs, and on and on. Um, but for people who are struggling to make ends meet, the cheapest food available is often the, the least healthy. The Food Research and Action Center, FRAC, has some really good resources on this, and they identify several factors contributing to health problems among the poor, including lack of access to healthy food, both because it's expensive and because there are less stores with fresh foods and produce um, in low-income neighborhoods, cycles of food deprivation and overeating, because when people have food insecurity, once they get money for food, they often overeat, um, and that inconsistent diet can directly lead to obesity. Um, mothers are particularly susceptible to this because they will often go longer periods without eating sufficiently in order to feed their children. Uh, limited access to health care and high levels of stress. And I think you know, we can add to that list the effects of austerity, which has meant the cutting of enormous amounts of critical food resources for poor families, and increased pressure on working people to work longer and longer hours and also the impact of sexism, which of course increases stress. So there are a number of broad economic and social trends that are likely contributing to increasing body weights and other health problems. Rather than actually looking at the systematic ways in which working people's health is under attack though, most discussions about fat place an enormous amount of blame on individuals, thus detracting attention from the people who really have control over the situation. Meanwhile, this blame and stigma placed on working class people for their health problems or their body size has real effects on people's lives. For one thing, fat people face a large amount of discrimination in a variety of venues. Healthcare is often tainted for people who are overweight. 
Often doctors will prescribe weight loss as a solution to nearly any physical problem, which means that actual treatment is often deferred or not given to the patient. Self-report studies show that a large percentage of doctors view fat patients as lazy, lacking in self-control, non-compliant, unintelligent, weak-willed, and dishonest. A study of nurses found that 31% said they prefer not to care for obese patients and 24% said that obese patients repulse them. Um, as a result, many fat people are reluctant to seek medical care at all or will delay important preventative care in order to avoid entering a situation where they feel like they're going to experience discrimination. Um, it happens in the workplace as well. Fat women in particular have been shown to get fewer promotions and lower pay than their thinner counterparts. There have also been a growing number of employee wellness programs that penalize employees for not losing weight or adhering to a variety of health standards. Um, typically, uh, there are increased costs for health care for, for people who don't comply with those rules. And the pressure on children in particular has been very intense over the last few years, um, and this is magnified by Michelle Obama's um, campaign against childhood obesity. Mm-hmm. She frequently invokes nasty stereotypes about fat people to make her point, mm-hmm. saying things directed at parents like, we can't lie around on the couch eating french fries and candy bars. <laughs> she has also said that childhood obesity is a public health threat, an economic threat, and a national security threat. <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure what that means. I mean, maybe, maybe fat kids are more likely to support Al-Qaeda. I You know, even though her campaign has included some, you know, modest legislation to increase food support to low-income families, which is helpful, the impact of the blame she puts on families and individuals is significant. Um, In schools over the last several years, there's been growing pressure to enforce body size standards among children. Um, Just this year, schools in Andover, Massachusetts sent home uh, fat letters to any family um, whose student they consider to be obese. Um, a step that obviously further shames and stigmatizes children who are already under an enormous amount of social pressure to lose weight. And we already know that this approach doesn't help people improve their health. Um, Ultimately, the result of blaming and stigmatizing fat people is more disordered eating and more health problems. The effect is particularly stark uh, for women. So I spoke earlier about the way many, many women are obsessed with their weight. For millions of women, This um, takes the extreme of severe eating disorders. At least 10 million women in the U.S. have anorexia or bulimia. Mm -hmm. Um, And anorexia actually has the highest premature fatality rate of any mental illness. Um, Around 20% of anorexics will die from complications related to the disorder, including suicide and heart failure. So, and, and this is an epidemic, by the way, that's largely being ignored by the government. So research dollars spent on anorexia average 70 cents per affected individual compared to $159 per individual for schizophrenia. So you can see a bit of a disparity. Um, this is a major problem for young women, but research and treatment is, is barely being funded. Even beyond the more extreme eating disorders, tens of millions of other women spend an enormous part of their lives in the yo-yo cycle of losing weight and gaining it back over and over again. At any given moment, 50% of American women are on a diet. This is linked to a number of health effects on its own, and it obviously perpetuates the stress and low self-esteem that ultimately leads some in the direction of full-blown eating disorders or depression or suicide. In addition, when officials like Michelle Obama talk about the role of families in properly feeding their children, it's mothers who still primarily bear the responsibility of feeding children uh, in the majority of families. As Natalie Boero (laughs) argues, 
Implicit in this critique of American culture is a blame of working mothers for allowing their children to watch too much television, for not having their eating habits more closely monitored, and for relying on convenience food for meals. This, of course, is tied to a broader attempt to shame mothers for working as opposed to staying home and cooking and cleaning and raising children. Um, some media outlets are more obvious in making this argument, like the British Daily Mail, which published an article not long ago titled, Children with Working Mothers Are Six Times More Likely to Be Fat. So when we really examine it, the war on obesity is really a thinly veiled method for reinforcing individual responsibility, particularly the responsibility of women, and taking away attention from the people who really make the core decisions about what food and health care we have access to. And it's going to be up to us to build an alternative explanation and a plan of action that actually places the blame for the healthcare crisis where it belongs um, and demands better living conditions for everyone. Um, so with that, I, I want to kind of finish up by talking about what those solutions might actually look like. Typically, people who have written on these topics take one, one, or, one of two approaches to counteracting the problems within our food system uh, or with women's body image. So the first approach is one often promoted by healthy food advocates, um, which calls for people to essentially retake control over their food. Um, and this ranges from growing your own gardens to buying organic to um, cooking all of your meals at home. Now, there's little doubt that those things can lead people to have healthier diets, um, but the big glaring problem is that none of those options are incredibly accessible to the majority of people who have to devote most of their waking hours to working. Um, this method also doesn't really stand a fighting chance at taking down the massive capitalists that currently control the food system. And so while this may be something that is fulfilling for some individuals, it falls short as a strategy for a mass movement. The second approach is um, more common among feminists who write on the topic of body image, as well as a lot of fat activists, um, and that is the um, love your body approach. Um, the idea is that you know, we should educate ourselves and each other to get past the cultural expectations of beauty and really learn to love and appreciate our bodies. This is great. <laughs> you know, I, I um, would celebrate anyone reaching that level of acceptance of themselves. But again, this is primarily an individual solution. Um, and it really relies on each of us managing to bypass a constant barrage of pressure on our bodies rather than actually dismantling the institutions that produce that pressure to begin with. One other thing I'll say about the body acceptance approach is that it kind of leaves the door open to corporations trying to profit off of selling us on loving our bodies. Mm -hmm. Dove's Real Beauty <laughs> campaign is a, is a great example of that. Um, they produce commercials and images that are supposed to challenge the mainstream account of beauty, but then the same company that owns Dove, Unilever, also produces a litany of products that directly reinforce those beauty expectations and sexism, like Axe Body Spray. Women's magazines also play on this. So at the beginning of this talk, I, I mentioned a Glamour magazine survey on body image. And in that article on body image, they included various tips to improving your own body image. But at the same time, if you look at their website, there are a bunch of links to other articles like the surprising way flossing can help you lose weight, <laughs> how to get these abs without doing crunches, and my personal favorite, how to eat cheese and not get fat. <laughs> Thank God. I want to eat cheese for so long. So, <laughs> obviously, many activists who promote body acceptance don't want anything to do with these ridiculous sort of corporate attempts to co-opt this message. So it's not as though these are equivalent. But at the end of the day, anything that's fundamentally based on individual transformation can also be very easily commodified. Um, and it's much harder to do that with a mass movement that actually confronts profit. So what can we put forward as some solutions, both to the very unhealthy nature of our food system 
and to the pervasive sexism that makes women feel horrible about themselves. One thing we can fight for immediately is universal single-payer health care that ensures that people's actual needs come before profit in the health system. Beyond just helping people get healthier, this would go a long way towards counteracting the segment of the medical industry that is currently profiting massively off of diet drugs and invasive surgeries, as well as the plastic surgery industry, which is in a constant drive for more patients and increased profits. We can also fight for access to healthy food as a human right, which means opposing austerity measures that attack food stamps or community nutrition programs, but also demanding more. Everyone should have easy, affordable access to fruits, vegetables, and other foods that are high in nutritional value. We need to build a women's movement that calls out sexism for what it is and directly challenges the media images and the industries built around making us feel ashamed of our bodies. A mass movement can effectively challenge the objectification of women whether in media, on the street, or in the workplace. And frankly, that kind of movement probably will have the effect of helping a lot of us to feel better about ourselves, not only about our bodies, but also about what we can actually achieve in this world. Ultimately, of course, I think the best thing we could do would be to overthrow capitalism. Um, and, and while there are many other sessions this weekend dealing with revolution and how that works, I will say that there are a number of common sense things that we could do if we had the opportunity to actually make decisions about our lives. We could organize communal kitchens, allowing people to eat healthfully with less effort, expense, and time. We could organize communal daycare and education um, that, not, that is based much more on play and gives children a chance to use their bodies and learn through movement. Communal kitchens and daycare would also, of course, go a long way towards dismantling the sexist division of labor that still dominates women's lives today. And really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we can reverse the attacks on women and on working people, but it's going to take a hard-fought struggle against the people who are currently profiting off of our misery. Now we continue with the soundtrack of a video from YouTube. This is entitled Sugar, the Bitter Truth from July 2009, and the speaker is Professor Robert Lustig. Although there are a few slides, it's still very much possible to get his drift just from listening carefully. I will link to the original YouTube videos. If you'd rather watch that, you can. Again, I've edited out hesitations and interaction with the audience, which doesn't really work so well on radio. Depending on where you're coming from, it might strike you he is making some fairly extraordinary claims, but I would suggest that he has the evidence to back them up. This corresponds very closely with something else that I've been looking into, the Paleolithic diet, basically suggesting that we should try and eat food much more similar to that which our ancestors ate, for which the human being is well adapted. So, no processed foods, not a lot of cooked foods, and very little sugar. This story dates back about uh, 30 years. This story has a little bit of something for everybody. It has a little bit of uh, biochemistry, a little bit of clinical research, a little bit of public health, a little bit of politics, a little bit of racial innuendo. Um, the only thing it's missing is sex. Uh, but, we, well, we can see what we can do about that, too. By the end of the story, I hope I will have debunked the last 30 years of nutrition information in America. And I would very much appreciate it if, at the end of the talk, you would tell me whether or not I was successful or not. Okay? So, in order to get you in the mood, as it were, uh, let's start with a little quiz. What do the Atkins diet and the Japanese diet have in common? 
The Atkins diet, of course, is all fat, no carb. The Japanese diet's all carb, no fat. They both work, right? So what do they share in common? They both eliminate the sugar fructose. Okay? So with that, think about what it means to be on a diet and what macronutrients you're eating and which ones you're not. And then we'll go from there, and I'll try to explain how this all works. You've all f- heard about the obesity epidemic. Here are the numbers. This is the, these, these are the NHANES database body mass index. Everybody knows what that is now. Histograms, marching ever rightward as time has gone on. This was what was projected for 2008 in blue. We had so far exceeded and surpassed. This is not even funny. This was from 2003. The reason I show this is not just to show that the obese are getting obeser. Of course, that's true. But in fact, the entire curve has shifted. We all weigh 25 pounds more today than we did 25 years ago, all of us. Now, it is often said that obesity is the ultimate interaction between genetics and environment. And Dr. Christian Vase, who's sitting in the back of the room, will be talking to you next week about the genetic component, which I am also very interested in. But having said that, our genetic pool did not change in the last 30 years. But boy, oh boy, has our environment sure changed. Okay? So tonight, we're going to talk about the environment rather than genes. Now, in order to talk about the environment, we need to talk about what is obesity. And, of course, you're all familiar with the basic concept of the first law of thermodynamics, which states that the total energy inside a closed system remains constant. Now, in human terms, the standard interpretation of this law is the following. If you eat it, you better burn it, or you're going to store it. Now, who here believes that? Oh, come on, you all do. Okay? I used to believe that. I don't anymore. I think that's a mistake. I think that is the biggest mistake, and that is the phenomenon I'm going to try to debunk over the course of the the next hour, because I think there's another way to state the law, okay, which is much more relevant and much more to the point. Before I get there, of course, if you believe that, these are the two problems, right? Calories in, calories out. Two behaviors, right? Gluttony and sloth. After all, you see anybody on the street... Oh, he's a glutton and a sloth. That's all there is to it. You know, Tommy Thompson said it on the TV show. We just eat too damn much, right? If that were the case, how did the Japanese do this? Why are they doing bariatric surgery on children at Tokyo Children's Hospital today? Why are the Chinese? Why are the Koreans? Why are the Australians? I mean, you know, these, all these countries who've adopted our diet all suffer now from the same problem. There's another way to state this first law, okay? And that is... If you're going to store it, that is biochemical forces that drive energy storage, and we'll talk about what they are in a few minutes, and you expect to burn it, that is normal energy expenditure for normal quality of life, because energy expenditure and quality of life are the same thing. Things that make your energy expenditure go up make you feel good, like ephedrine, it's off the market, coffee for two hours, then you need another hit like me. Things that make your energy expenditure go down, like starvation, hypothyroidism, make you feel lousy. And how many calories you burn and how good you feel are synonymous. So if you're going to store it, that is an obligate weight gain set up by a biochemical process, and you expect to burn it, that is normal energy expenditure for normal quality of life, then you're going to have to eat it. And now all of a sudden, these two behaviors The gluttony and the sloth are actually secondary to a biochemical process, which is primary. And that's a different way to think about the process. And it 
also alleviates the obese person from being the perpetrator, but rather the victim, which is how obese people really feel. Because no one chooses to be obese. Certainly no child chooses to be obese. Oh, you say, oh, yeah, sure, I know some adults who don't care. You know, Rossini, the famous composer, you know, La Gaza Larga, Marriage of Figure and all that, he retired at age 37 to a lifetime of gastronomic debauchery. Okay, maybe he chose to be obese. Okay, but the kids I take care of in uh, obesity clinic do not choose to be obese. In fact, this is the exception that proves the rule. We have an epidemic of obese six-month-olds. Now, if you want to say that it's all about diet and exercise, then you have to explain this to me. So any hypothesis that you want to proffer that explains the obesity epidemic, you've got to explain this one too. Okay? And this is not just in America, these six-month-old obese kids, but these are around the world now. Let's talk about calorie intake, because that's what today is about. We're going to talk about the energy intake side of the uh, equation. Okay? Sure enough, we are all eating more now than we did 20 years ago. Teen boys are eating 275 calories more. American adult males are eating 187 calories more per day. American adult females are eating 335 calories more per day. No question. We're all eating more. question is, why? How come? Because it's all there? You know what? It was there before. There's a system in our body, which you've heard about over the last couple of weeks, called leptin. Everybody heard of leptin? Okay? It's this hormone that comes from your fat cell, tells your brain, you know what? I've had enough. I don't need to eat anymore. I'm done. And I can burn energy properly. Well, you know what? If you're eating 187 or 335 calories more today than you were 20 years ago, your leptin ain't working. Because if it were, you wouldn't be doing it, whether the food was there or not. There's something wrong with our biochemical negative feedback system that normally controls energy balance. And we have to figure out what caused it and how to reverse it. And that's what tonight is about. But nonetheless, there are 275 calories we have to account for. So where are they? Are they in the fat? No, they're not in the fat. Five grams, 45 calories out of the 275, nothing. In fact, it's all in the carbohydrate. 57 grams, 228 calories. We're all eating more carbohydrate. Now, you all know back in 1982, the American Heart Association, the American Medical Association, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture admonished us to reduce our total fat consumption from 40 to 30%. Everybody remember that? Okay, That's how Entenmann's fat-free cakes came into being. Remember that? So what happened? We've done it. 40% down to 30%. And look what's happened to the obesity, metabolic syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, stroke prevalence, all jacked way up as our total fat consumption as a percent has gone down. It ain't the fat, people. It ain't the fat. So what is it? Well, it's the carbohydrate. Specifically, which carbohydrate? Well, beverage intake, right? 41% increase in soft drinks, 35% increase in fruit drinks, fruit aids, whatever you want to call them. Just remember, down here, one can of soda a day is 150 calories. Multiply that by 365 days a year, and then divide that by the magic number of 3,500 calories per pound. If you eat or drink 3,500 calories more than you burn, you will gain one pound of fat. Okay? That's the first law of thermodynamics. No argument there. That's worth 15.5 pounds of fat per year. One soda a day is 15.5 pounds per year. Now, you've all heard that before. That's not news to you. The question is, 
How come we don't respond? How come leptin doesn't work? How come we can't stay energy stable? That's what we're going to get to. So I call this slide very specifically the Coca-Cola conspiracy. Anybody here work for Coke? Pepsi? Okay, good. All right, so this over here, 1915, the first standardized bottle of Coca-Cola out of Atlanta. Anybody remember this bottle? Sure, a lot of you do, right? I remember this bottle because my grandfather in Brooklyn took me on Saturday afternoon down to the local soda shop on Avenue M and Ocean Avenue, and every Saturday afternoon I had one of these. I remember it very well. Now, if you drank one of those every day, assuming, of course, that the recipe hasn't changed, because after all, only two people in the world know the recipe, and they're not allowed to fly in the plane at the same time, right? You know that, okay? Assuming the recipe hasn't changed, if you drank one of those every day for a year, six and a half ounces, that would be worth eight pounds of fat per year, okay? Now... In 1955, after World War II and sugar became plentiful again and wasn't being rationed, we have the appearance of the 10-ounce bottle, the first one that was found in vending machines, and you probably remember that one as well. Then in 1960, the ever-ubiquitous 12-ounce can, worth 16 pounds of fat per year, and of course today, this over here is the single unit of measure, right, 20 ounces. Anybody know how many servings are in that bottle? 2.5, 8-ounce servings, that's right. Anybody know, anybody who gets 2.5, 8-ounce servings out of that bottle? That's a single serving, right? Okay, so that would be worth 26 pounds of fat per year if you did that every day. And then, of course, over here we have the 7-Eleven Big K Thirst Buster, Big Gulp, whatever you want to call it. 44 ounces worth 57 pounds of fat per year. And if that wasn't bad enough, my colleague Dr. Dan Hale at the University of Texas San Antonio tells me that down there they got a Texas-sized Big Gulp. (laughs) 60 ounces of Coca-Cola, a Snickers bar, and a bag of Doritos, all for 99 cents. Okay, so if you did that every day for a year, that would be worth 112 pounds of fat per year. So why do I call it the Coca-Cola conspiracy? Well, what's in Coke? Caffeine, good, good. So what's caffeine? It's a mild stimulant, right? It's also a diuretic, right? Makes you pee free water. What else is in Coke? Salt. 55 milligrams of sodium per can. It's like drinking a pizza. So what happens if you take on sodium and lose free water? You get thirstier, right. So why is there so much sugar in Coke? To hide the salt. When was the last time you went to a Chinese restaurant and had sweet and sour pork? That's half soy sauce. You wouldn't eat that. Except the sugar plays a trick on your tongue. You can't even tell it's there. Everybody remember New Coke, 1985? More salt, more caffeine. They knew what they were doing. That's the smoking gun. They know. All right, so that's why it's the Coca-Cola conspiracy. So are soft drinks the cause of obesity? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask the scientists for the National Soft Drink Association, they'll tell you there's absolutely no association between sugar consumption and obesity. Okay? If you ask my colleague, Dr. David Ludwig, remember, I'm Lustig, he's Ludwig. Okay? He's, he does what I do at Boston Children's Hospital. Someday we're going to open a law firm. Each additional sugared sweetened drink increase over a 19-month follow-up period in kids increased their BMI by this much and their odds-risk ratio for obesity by 60%. That's a prospective study on soft drinks and obesity. The real deal. If you look at meta-analyses, everybody know what a meta-analysis is? Okay, it's a conglomeration of numerous studies subjected to rigorous statistical analysis. 88 cross-sectional and longitudinal studies regressing soft drink consumption against energy intake, body weight, milk and calcium intake, adequate nutrition, all showing significant associations, and some of these being longitudinal. This came from Kelly Brownell's group at Yale. 
I should comment, I should disclaimer, those studies that were funded by the beverage industry showed consistently smaller effects than those that were independent. Wonder why. Now, how about the converse? What if you take the soft drinks away? So this was the fizzy drink study from Christchurch, England, James et al., British Medical Journal, where they went into schools and they took the soda machines out, okay? just like we did here in California. We haven't seen the data yet, but they went and did it for a year. So the prevalence of obesity in the intervention schools stayed absolutely constant, no change, whereas the prevalence of obesity in the control schools, where nothing changed, continued to rise over the year. Okay, so that's pretty good. How about type 2 diabetes? Are soft drinks the cause of type 2 diabetes? Well, this study from JAMA in 2004 looked at the uh, relative risk ratio of all soft drinks, cola, fruit punch, and found a very statistically significant trend of sugared soft drinks, fruit aids, etc., causing type 2 diabetes. And you know we've got just as big a problem with type 2 diabetes as we do with obesity for the same reasons. And this was a sugared sweetened beverage against risk for type 2 diabetes in African-American women. Looking here at sugar, sugared sweetened soft drinks, just the, the downward arrow shows that there was a significant rise as the number of drinks went up. You can see that here, whereas orange and grapefruit juice, interestingly, did not. Two different studies, two different increases in uh, type 2 diabetes relative to sh- soft drink consumption. So what's in soft drinks? Well, in America, it's this stuff, right? High fructose corn syrup. Everybody's heard of it, right? It's been demonized, something awful. So much so that the corn refiners industry has launched a mega campaign to try to absolve high fructose corn syrup of any problems, which we'll talk about in a moment. Okay? But the bottom line is, this is something we were never exposed to before, 1975. And currently, we are consuming 63 pounds per person per year. Every one of us. 63 pounds of high fructose corn syrup. That's American, yes. What is high fructose corn syrup? Well, you'll see in a minute. It's one glucose, one fructose. We'll talk about those at great length. One of the reasons we use high fructose corn syrup is because it's sweeter. So here's sucrose. This is caner beet sugar, standard table sugar, you know, the white stuff, okay? And we give that an index and sweetness of 100. So here's high fructose corn syrup. It's actually sweeter. It's about 120. So you should be able to use less, right? Wrong. We use just as much. In fact, we use more. So here's lab fructose over here, if you had crystalline fructose. And they're starting to put crystalline fructose into some of the soft drinks. You can, uh, they, they're actually advertising it as a good thing. And that's got a sweetness of 173. So you should be able to cut that way back, right? They're not. Lactose down here, milk sugar, it's not sweet at all. Okay? And glucose, I should point out over here, is 74. It's not particularly sweet, and we're going to get to that at the end. And what goes on with glucose. But anyway, there's why we use it. It's sweeter. It's also cheaper, as I'll show you. So here's high fructose corn syrup. One glucose, one fructose. Notice the glucose is a six-membered ring. The fructose is a five-membered ring. They are not the same. Believe me, they're not the same. That's what this whole talk is about, is how they're not the same. And here's sucrose, and they're just bound together by this ether linkage. We have this enzyme in our uh, gut called sucrase. It kills that bond in two seconds flat, okay, and you absorb it. And basically, high fructose corn syrup, sucrose, it's a non-issue. It's a wash. They're the same. Okay? And they know that, it's the, it's the, they're, that they're the same, the uh, soft drink companies and the corn refiners. Because here are their missives. Okay? This comes from the Corn Refiners Association. Obesity research shows high fructose corn syrup metabolizes and impacts satiety similar to sugar. Indeed it does. I agree. 
at academic meetings around the country. Okay? Hunger and satiety profiles energy intakes following ingestion of soft drinks. Bottom line, research supported by the American Beverage Institute and the Corn Refiners Association. They are correct. There is absolutely no difference between high fructose corn syrup and sucrose. So much so that the Corn Refiner Association, in an attempt to capture market share, came out with this entire ad campaign. You probably saw it on the back page of the New York Times. Okay? It was on TV. It's everywhere. My hairdresser says that sugar is healthier than high fructose corn syrup. Wow, you get your hair done by a doctor? I didn't know I could cut hair. If you all want to see all of them, there are a whole bunch of them. You can go to www.sweetsurprise.com and see how you're being hoodwinked. Okay? But indeed, this is true. High fructose corn syrup and sucrose are exactly the same. They're both equally bad. They're both poison. Okay? I said it. Poison. My charge before the end of tonight is to demonstrate that fructose is a poison. And I will do it. And you will tell me if I was successful. Nonetheless, here's Center for the Science and the Public Interest and the Corn Refiners Association. Everybody remember last year when Gavin Newsom floated a soda tax? Governor Patterson of New York has since floated one, and other people are starting to talk about it. So why are they saying this? Well, they're saying obesity is a problem, kids are drinking soda, let's tax it. So they're talking about soda like it's empty calories. I'm here to tell you that it goes way beyond empty calories. The reason why this is a problem is because fructose is a poison. Okay? It's not about the calories. It not, has nothing to do with the calories. It's a poison by itself. And I'm going to show you that. Nonetheless, I just want to read you this paragraph here okay, in yellow. We respectfully urge that the proposal be revised as soon as possible to reflect the scientific evidence that demonstrates no material differences in the health effects of high fructose corn syrup and sugar. I agree. Here's the important sentence. The real issue is that excessive consumption of any sugars may lead to health problems. Not may, does. Does. So here's the secular trend in fructose consumption over the past hundred years. Before we had food processing, we used to get our fructose from fruits and vegetables. And if we did that, today we would consume about 15 grams per day of fructose. Not sugar, fructose. Sugar would be 30 grams, it would be double. Okay, We're just talking about fructose today. Prior to World War II, we were up to about 16 to 24, about 20 grams. So a small increase from the beginning of the century to World War II. Then, in 1977, just as high fructose corn syrup was hitting the market, we had increased that. We had basically doubled up to 37 grams per day, or 8% of total caloric intake. By 1994, we were up to 55 grams of the stuff per day. Remember, if you want to do sugar, then double the number. So that's 10.2. So you can see that more and more of our caloric intake, more higher percentage, is being accounted for by sugar every single year. So it's not just that we're eating more. We're eating more sugar. And for adolescents today, we're up to almost 75 grams, 12% of total caloric intake. 25% of adolescents today consume at least 15% of their calories from fructose alone. This is a disaster. An absolute unmitigated disaster. The fat's going down, the sugar's going up, and we're all getting sick. Now let me show you why. So this is where the politics comes in. This is the perfect storm. And it was created from three political winds that swirled around all at the same time. The first political wind, everything bad that ever happened in this country started with one man. 
So Richard Nixon, in his paranoia back in 1972, food prices were going up and down and up and down. I'm going to show you that on the next slide. Okay? And he was worried that this was actually going to cost him the election.